So over the summer, our small group was doing a study, a Bible study through the books of First and Second Thessalonians. And in the final chapter of Second Thessalonians, uh, Paul is warning the church about idleness. And he describes a rule that he used when he was visiting with them. He said this in 2 Thessalonians 3.10. He says, The one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. Now, to follow up of that verse in our Bible study, we discussed as a group how do we reconcile Paul's very strong language uh, against what are often you know, called, some people call them handouts, with the compassion that Jesus called his followers to embody. And we took that a step further and began to investigate how this teaching of Paul might intersect with the, the American political system as it relates to government entitlements, right? programs that we will probably have some familiarity with, Medicaid, Medicare, welfare, food stamps, right? all those, those kind of government entitlements, social safety nets. What does the Bible have to say about this? Conversations like this are important because there have been many times where I have heard and seen verses of what I just read in 2 Thessalonians 3 weaponized against these types of programs. You know, the, the, what I believe to be an, an erroneous belief, but the belief nonetheless that many American Christians have in our culture is that those who work hard are rewarded for their hard work and they receive financial security. And conversely, those who struggle financially are there because of their own poor choices. That's something that's, that I hear time and time again. And to tie it all together, uh, you know, that, that those who are wise stewards of their resources should not be forced to pay for the needs of others who are unwilling to work to support themselves. Again, I'm not advocating for that. I'm just restating some, something that I've heard periodically in, in the church. Now, th this belief is um, often called the, the Protestant work ethic. It's a term that was coined in 1904 by Max Weber. And the suggestion, his suggestion was that the doctrine of Calvinism and, and predestination, kind of where this Protestantism largely came from, combined with the disciplines of diligence and frugality, provided the basis for the rise of capitalism in the Western world. Right? The ramifications of this is that if you are producing, then you are contributing to society, and if you are not producing, you are a drain on society. Again, that's not what I'm advocating for. I'm just trying to share the background. Now, it's no wonder that out of that Protestant work ethic and belief, we have figures like Ronald Reagan who decried the welfare queens. Or Paul Rand, within the last few years, stating that there is a culture problem, and I think there is a particular culture that he had in mind when he said it, where people don't want to work. As followers of Jesus, what are we supposed to think about the place of entitlements, or what some call social safety nets, in our nation? Now this morning I wanted to take a little bit of time to see what the Bible might say about social safety nets. Are there examples that we can point to in Scripture that either supports or nullifies these types of programs? Now, I've already cited one verse, that 2 Thessalonians 3.10, that's often used to dismiss these programs, but when it comes to biblical interpretation, 
it is so easy to just cherry-pick proof texts. You can really make the Bible say whatever you want it to say, depending on how you choose to quote it. And so I'm acutely aware of this fact. So, you know, in that, take what I say with a grain of salt. Right? Strain it through the colander of the whole Bible right? to see if the things that I say are true to the, the totality of the biblical witness. That'd be my encouragement for you. Don't just, don't just take it at fact because I said it. And just to show my, my hand and bias right from the get-go, so to some extent, I think that the Protestant work ethic in itself can be a good thing. Because the Bible does teach that we ought to be responsible stewards of what God has given us. Whether that be financial resources or even the jobs that we have. And again, jobs is not necessarily, uh, maybe a better word would be vocations, because you, know, you, you can work at Starbucks and that is a job uh, that you get paid for, but there are a lot of stay-at-home parents that don't earn a dime, but that is no less a job. God calls us to vocations. Right? He gives us the ability to have spaces where we exercise sovereignty, we exercise some degree of authority and leadership, working to reflect the goodness and kingdom of God in those little spheres that He has set us over. But the other side of my bias is that this work ethic should never be weaponized as a tool to harm others. Right? Unfortunately, what we often have seen is this work ethic has heralded as law to the detriment of what I'm going to call compassionate justice. Because the truth is that everyone has an opportunity, has the possibility of falling on hard times. Any of us might be in a situation where we need the sustenance, the support of others, assistance to survive. And, you know, frankly, even just talking about, you know, bad luck is what I'm talking about. But that ignores the sordid history of our nation, which has systematically stacked the deck, deck against the brown and black people of our nation from the get-go. I mean, the first slaves arrived in America just 12 years after the founding of our first settlement of Jamestown in 1607. So by 1619, all the way through the end of the Civil War, there was a large subset of our population that had no rights themselves, not to mention everything, Jim Crow and whatnot, that followed after that. You know, just for the full sake of transparency, I, I support personally the, the basis for social safety nets. There have been seasons where my family and I have benefited from some of these governmental programs. So my goal is to take us through some scripture passages to highlight a few of the social safety nets that God gave his people. Now, I'm not suggesting that we replicate these examples that I'm going to share with you. I'm not saying that we should try to force these into a 21st century American mindset. But as we read them, are there principal nuggets of truth that are contained within them? I don't believe the Bible tells us what government programs we should or shouldn't have. Let me say that again. The Bible is not going to tell you what social programs our government should or should not have. But I think it does give us a window into God's compassionate heart for people. Now, i got a lot of passages that I'm going to cite. I'm not going to have us turn to them all. But if you're interested, again, I'd encourage you, jot these things down. There should be uh, little notepads in the pews there. 
Use them as reference. Revisit them on your own. Again, don't just take my word for it. And if you have any questions about them, let me know. I'm happy to continue the conversation. So let's begin with Exodus 22, verses 21 to 23. Exodus 22, 21 to 23. Right, this is two chapters after Moses has, given, uh, has been given the Ten Commandments by God. And he says this to Moses. Do not mistreat or oppress a foreigner. For you were foreigners in Egypt. Do not take advantage of the widow or the fatherless. If you do and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. Here and in other places of Scripture, God is setting up kind of three primary, we're going to see a fourth in a moment, but three primary categories of people that the Hebrew nation was supposed to care for. First, he says foreigners. Think immigrants. We, we, don't, we usually typically uh, use that word instead when we're talking about people who don't necessarily belong to a country but find themselves in a different country. The second is widows, and the third is orphans. Now, the only group of those three that has any justification attached to it are the foreigners. God is reminding the Hebrew people that they were once immigrants in another nation. There was a season of time, 400 years, that they lived in Egypt, a place that was not their home, where they were mistreated and they were oppressed. Remembering, this is for the Hebrew people, the nation of Israel, remembering their past should propel them forward in the present, in that present moment, to care for the strangers who are within their political boundaries. Now, what links these three groups together is that these were the people groups who were most vulnerable in their society. Immigrants would have been removed from positions of power. They were strangers in a strange land. They had left family, work. Perhaps they didn't even share the same language of the people of Israel. The next mention is widows. These were women who had lost their husbands. The ancient world was a place of patriarchy. Men had nearly all of the power in the relationship. They were the providers. They were the protectors. If a husband died and there was no immediate family presently present, the woman was often left to herself, often unable to provide for herself. She was often an easy target for predatory behavior. Lastly was the fatherless, the orphans, children who had lost their parents and were unable to provide for themselves. These were all people who were experiencing some sort of deficiency within the power dynamic that had been established in their society. Let's jump to Zechariah chapter 7, 9 to 10. Zechariah 7, 9 to 10. This is what the Lord Almighty said. Administer true justice Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. Very similar to what we saw in Exodus, but this passage adds to this list of three a fourth category, those who are economically disadvantaged. What Exodus and Zechariah say in the negative, right? Don't do this. Don't oppress these people. I think Isaiah puts it positively. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 17 says this. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. 
Take up the care of the fatherless. Plead the case for the widow. Right? Don't just avoid being cruel to these marginalized groups, but here in Isaiah we see the call to positively take up the means to support them, to advocate for them. Now I gave you a citation from the law, Exodus. I gave you two, Zechariah and Isaiah, from the prophets. But it's not just those two. Here the wisdom literature says the same thing. This is Psalm 146, verse 9. Psalm chapter 146, verse 9. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow, but he frustrates the ways of the wicked. Time and time again in Scripture, you see the same theme, that God commands towards his people to be an advocate to the vulnerable in their society, that those who are in positions of power should not abuse that power but should also use it to protect others. And I'm not even, I I didn't throw it in here, but there's a passage in Malachi, I believe it's chapter 3, that says something very similar, and it actually says that when you mistreat these people groups, that God is going to be a prosecuting attorney against you. He, He actually counts the people who mistreat them in the same way that he accounts other people who break the law. Gary Hagen, who is the president, I assume he's still the president, he at least was the president of the International Justice Mission, wrote a book called The Locust Effect. And he describes in it God's sense of justice in the Old Testament. That God, the, the language that God uses shows that he aligns himself with the downtrodden, that he advocates and works on behalf of those who are oppressed, whereas is actively fighting against the wicked and oppressors. Now, what he does is he contrasts that with our sense of justice in American culture, right? Our symbol of justice is lady justice. You've probably seen pictures of her. It's the the woman who is blindfolded, holding scales in one hand and a sword in the other. And that represents that in our judicial system, that justice is blind, that there is impartiality that any person in a court of law is not supposed to have a guilty or innocent ruling until all the facts are laid out. But Gary Hagen states that the picture of God we see in the Old Testament is, is not this, that God is not a blind arbiter of justice, but that God is not only judge, but he is also prosecuting attorney, that he knows who the guilty are and he is advocating against the oppressors, that God is not neutral in his justice. Now, I know that was a little bit of a prolonged overview of the heart of God, but I wanted to try to illustrate to us what what righteous justice looks like. Again, we often talk about righteousness in the Bible in terms of morality, that we have a certain way that we're supposed to live, right? Observe the Ten Commandments. Don't swear. Don't, you know, embezzle money, whatever it might be. But righteousness in the Old Testament was very closely associated with the concept of justice. Tim Keller wrote a whole book about it. Uh, Gosh, I'm blanking on the name. Generous Justice, I think is what it's called. I don't know. You should read it. It's really good, real thin. But I want to, from here, I want to look at, I wanted to look at God's heart for for the vulnerable. But I want to give you two concrete examples in, of these societal safety nets that were practiced, or at least were given, to the ancient Israelites. And remember, this is part of the law. Both of these, these, um, 
examples come from the book of Leviticus, which is part of this law. So in their theocracy, the nation of Israel, these were established governmental expectations for their people to illustrate what it meant to be good citizens. The first are what are called the gleaning laws. This comes from Leviticus 19, verses 9 through 10. Again, Leviticus 19, 9 through 10. This is the command. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that had fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. It's really interesting. A lot of times when God gives commands like this in Scripture, He ends it with, I am the Lord your God. It's kind of His stamp of authority. Like, you best be, you know, you, you be, it's, it's kind of like when a parent calls their child by, you know, all three pieces of their name. You know they mean business. It's kind of what God's doing here. When you planted or harvested your crops, what this passage says you were not supposed to do is exhaustively harvest everything. Right? You weren't supposed to go to the very, very edges of that. You were supposed to leave the perimeters of your fields untouched. And you know, as you're you know, lopping heads of grain off or plucking grapes from the vine, if, if pieces of that fell on the floor, you, weren't, you were supposed to leave them behind. Right? You weren't supposed to go over it again, you know, scouring for every lost head of grain. And the explanation is given in verse 10, that they are to do this to benefit the poor and the foreigner. Because if you were poor and you struggled with food insecurity, there were places that you could go. You could go to one of these fields and there would be food that you could access for yourself and your family. Right? By leaving the edges of the field intact, the landowner provided an avenue for these people to survive, even if they had nothing to their name. It was something built into their society that provided security for folks who had run into bad luck or even if they were destitute because of their own poor decisions. Right? There's no mention in the text of, you know, build a fence, right? create a gate so that you can you, you know, let in those who have fallen on hard times, but you can block out those poor decision makers. The resources were available to anyone who had need of them. Now, what's, one thing that's interesting about this system is that it does highlight the dignity of work. Right? Work is a good thing. It's something that God encourages us to do right from the opening chapters of Genesis. Part of the, the mandate of God to Adam and Eve was to work the land and till it, to subdue it. But this, this avenue of gleaning, these gleaning laws, highlight the way, one way to support economic, the economic margins of society and in the process, encourages a level of personal responsibility in the process. Again, once again, this, this doesn't equate to a one-to-one -one correspondence into how American entitlements should work. I'm not trying to advocate for that. You know, this was something that was debated last year uh, in, in our nation with, when the Biden administration increased the child tax credit, uh, you know, gave advanced payments to the child tax credit. Should those benefits go to just those who are currently working, or those who don't work, should they receive the benefits as well? Right? The, the, because in the past, it was you, you had to make a certain amount of money in order to receive that. But the desire last year was to say, you know what, whether it was the pandemic or whatnot, anyone who has need, we're going to provide this for. 
Now, I don't think the Bible answers that question of, of how, you know, going forward, how should the child tax credit be, be situated and, and structured. I, again, that's not the purview of what this, this is saying. But what we see in the value of the gleaning laws firsthand, a great example of this is the book of Ruth. If you've been following with us in the, the Bible reading plan, you know, we, we read this about a month ago. Ruth is the story of a Gentile woman who marries a Hebrew man and soon finds herself to be a widow. Her mother-in-law, Naomi, uh, is also a widow, so she has no husband, no sons. She's got a daughter-in-law with no husband. Uh, and she's like, you know what, Ruth, you're, you're still young. You can marry again. You can provide for yourself. But Ruth has this loyalty to Naomi. And she says, you know what, wherever you go, I'm going to go. And so Ruth, who is not a, not a Hebrew, she's not from the nation of Israel, she's a Gentile, goes back with Naomi to her homeland. And the way in which they can provide for themselves, the way they survive, is by gleaning. They didn't own any property. There was no nest egg for them when they returned. So Ruth goes and she forages. She gleans on the land of her deceased husband's extended family. She's able to survive because of these gleaning laws. The other example that I want to give you guys, so that was, that was one. The other example is a few chapters later, uh, and, and it's called the year of Jubilee. Now, I should put an asterisk with this. Is there is, um, this was something that was commanded of the nation of Israel to observe. There is no recorded observance of it in the scriptures and in history. It's possible that they did. It's possible that they didn't. But it's, it was in the law, and so this was something that God expected of them. So this is Leviticus chapter 25. Leviticus 25. It is a long chapter, so I, I can't just, you know, I couldn't find just a small section to, to read, but I want to give you an, an overview. Every 50th year was the year of Jubilee. Right? They would sound this trumpet in the land to proclaim to the nation. In essence, the year of Jubilee was a reset button for them. Let's say that you had had a medical emergency that you couldn't finance. So what you might do is you might sell your property off to a neighbor. You know, it's kind of like us taking a mortgage, a second mortgage on a home in order to get the necessary funds. You know, perhaps it's just one thing after another. You've sold all your land, but you still have bills that need to be paid and you have nothing left of value. Well, one of the things that was customary in the ancient world is that you could sell yourself to be a slave, to work the land. At the year of Jubilee, everything would reset. All that land that had been sold off would resort, would be restored to its ancestral owners. Any, any slaves would be freed, their debts canceled. Right? The year of Jubilee was a, signified a time of joy and freedom. Now, if we compare this to American economics, right now, we're living in a time where we just see the rich get richer. And we often see the poor diminish, going in the opposite direction. Right? The gap between wealthy and poor, even the wealthy and the middle class, continues to grow seemingly exponentially. But the year of Jubilee, again, just hypothetically, I'm not saying we should do it in American society, but hypothetically, if the year of Jubilee in Israel was done here, it would slow the expansion of that gap. Because the year of Jubilee meant that you couldn't build up your farming empire forever. You couldn't hold a monopoly on the land. You know, maybe you had been blessed with a great harvest. 
You used that money that you would earn to expand, buying up more and more property and servants. But this was never permanent. There was always an end date. Within 50 years, you would have to return those base assets that you were building your empire upon to the original owners. You'd still have the wealth that you accrued, but the year of Jubilee, by having that kind of reset button for their society, their economic society to have, it prevented a string of bad luck or a string of bad decisions from snowballing into abject poverty for generations. Each new generation knew that there was land that was coming back to them, regardless of decisions their ancestors had made. Now, these aren't exhaustive glimpses into the social programming of Israel, but I think they give us a nice cross-section of the structures that God had put in place to care for and protect the vulnerable. So the, the, the few minutes that I have left, I want to try to bring this home and try to think, why is this relevant to us? Now, first, I don't have answers. <laughs> I'm really good at kind of making new questions, getting people to think, but sometimes the, the answers to these questions are really hard. I don't know that there is one right answer or a silver, silver bullet. And so to that end, I don't have an answer to how our, how our American government should run its entitlements programs. Again, please don't hear me saying that we need to replicate these social programs from the Old Testament. What we read in the Old Testament doesn't even force us to agree fully with the programs that our government currently uses. The, the Bible doesn't give us a blueprint for how to create these social programs and who should or shouldn't qualify for them. That's not the purpose of the Bible. It's not a manual where you can you know, throw all your precise questions to it and it'll just give you magical answers. Okay? The Bible is not going to tell you how to set up your iPhone. I think we can all agree on that. You know, and in the same way, it's not in its purview to tell us how we should run our particular style of American democracy. So if you're looking for concrete, specific answers of what programs to run, you're going to need to look elsewhere. The Bible will not tell you that. But my goal this morning was to expand our minds, to look through the window of Scripture to the heart of God. Don't get so hung up on the programs and miss, on the, miss out on the compassion of God who is behind them. God loves his creation. God loves people who are made in his image, whether they are successful or not. He loves them when they're financially struggling. He doesn't turn a cold shoulder to those who dug the pit themselves with their bad decisions any more than he does to the ones who just can't seem to catch a break. What is clear in these examples is that God in his goodness and his compassion wants to see people thrive. He commanded his people, not asked nicely, not suggested, but gave commands multiple times in Scripture for his people to take care of the marginalized and the vulnerable. And he established patterns in that law that would aid in that process. We are called by God to love our neighbor. We are called by God to love our neighbor with the same type of love of which God first loved us. And I think that means when we love our neighbor, 
Included with it is the heart of God for providing for their social good. Too often we think of loving our neighbor in terms of just not being a jerk to them. Right? We think about treating, how we treat people with our words or our thoughts or our actions. But to love our neighbor, if we're really going to love our neighbor the way that God loves, it also means being an advocate for the weak, being an advocate for the vulnerable. It means that just like God, what we saw with Gary Hoggins' example of justice, justice may not always look like equality, where every person gets what they deserve. But the justice of God might look a little bit more like equity, where we advocate more strongly and passionately for the people who have no one advocating for them. Again, I can't tell you what that should look like concretely in our society. People say that welfare is broken. Maybe it is. But it is important for us to have something that compassionately provides for the needs of others. You know, this past year, as I mentioned earlier, with the child tax credit, we saw an increase, of, of the, an increase in, in the amount of money that is given and in advance of it being given. Columbia University published a, a study in August 2021. This is one month after that took effect. Just one month after that payments, it lifted three million kids out of poverty. It was a 25% cut in the poverty rate. Now, to me, that seems like a compassionate action that we could all get behind. Again, I'm not trying to like politically platform here right now because I know it's still, you know, it expired for 2022. But man, I can get behind that. Seeing kids vulnerable. Again, if you want to be calloused and, 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 you know, talk about how people dug their own, you know, they, they got a line in the bed that they made, that's fine. But there are a lot of kids out there who are struggling that had nothing to do with the, the decisions of their parents or grandparents or family members. We've got to think of ways that we can advocate and care for the vulnerable around us. I believe that we as Christians should be participating in these conversations. Not because the Bible tells us what we have to do, but because we are fueled by the love and compassion of God for others. And there are people all over, followers of Jesus everywhere, who are talking about these sort of things. One book that it's on my, my uh, to-read list comes from Duke Kwong and Gregory Thompson. And together, they recently wrote a book about a Christian call to reparations. You want to go into to a, a white evangelical church and talk about reparations, you're going to hear an earful. But here are these evangelical Christians saying, we need to be honest and have conversations about this. We may not be satisfied with the current system that we have, but what are we doing out of our faith to change it, to assist what's going on? I'm going to close with a picture from the earliest Christians. This is Acts chapter 4, verses 32 to 35. We see one such experiment in the church. Acts 4, 32 to 35 say this, All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there was no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them and brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. 
Notice verse 34. There was no needy persons among them. Now, as we read this, again, the instinctual response is, we've got to replicate this. But what we find here in Scripture is not a proscription. It's not saying, go and do likewise. It's not mandating this. In fact, this model, there's a good chance that it failed in the end. In some of the letters of Paul, we see him collecting money to go to the church in Jerusalem. They had given of their resources to help others, and they had fallen on hard times themselves. And they, they needed to survive through the generosity of others. Large part, this is probably because they believed, that, you know, they initially thought that Jesus was coming back in the next 10 to 20 years. And so it's like, what, what purpose does it mean for me to have a house if Jesus is just going to come back? I'm going to sell that thing and I'm going to give it to those who need. And then Jesus delayed and he delayed and delayed, and they're like, all right, how are we going to make ends meet? But what examples like this reveal is the creativity of the church, their willingness to hold their possessions loosely and their desire to care for those around them. How will we use our personal or governmental resources to provide that safety net to others, giving them the tools necessary to thrive? The biblical witness stands as a testimony to us that God cares for the broken, the downtrodden, the oppressed. That God works on behalf of the vulnerable and commands that we do the same. This is not a one-size-fits-all program to accomplish this work. But I believe that God invites us to join with Him in bringing His restoration to the corners of the globe. Whether we do so personally, whether we work alongside a nonprofit or whether we partner with and influence the governmental institutions to do this holy work. Join me in prayer. Lord, reveal to us your heart more and more, that we would be a people transformed by your love, knowing that while we had nothing to offer you, you loved us enough to to give of yourself, giving your own life, Jesus, to die so that we could thrive spiritually with you. May we take that that same imbalance of relationship and love to care for those who are hurting. That perhaps there's nothing that they can offer us. There's nothing that is uh, productive or, or effective or efficient for us to give. But Lord, that's not why we give. We give to care for folks, to care for those who are stamped in your image made in the image of God, that they might survive and thrive, just as we do. Lord, send your Holy Spirit to give us wisdom, because these are some really hard questions, really hard things to think about, that we might navigate this minefield with grace and truth. In Jesus' name, amen.